0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. HRN is teaming up with them to host a virtual event all about American cider. Check it out at heritageradionetwork.org slash cider.
0: This week on Meetin' 3, we're talking Organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing.
2: If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I
3: want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in.
0: As independent contractors, they, can't directly tell people you know when or or where to work but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to meet in three available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, hey,
1: hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. I'm recording remotely. This show is going to be about craft beer legends. Back in January on episode 565, we did a show about British Columbia beer and malt. And we realized that Brad McQuay uh, of Koenig Brewing Systems has a ton of experience in the industry going back to the, the 1980s, the early days of craft beer and um, we wanted to get him back to talk about some of those connections he has between installing brewing equipment and, and some of the challenges he's faced and some of the highlights. Uh, and he's, he's on with a couple of guests. So let's
2: just go around the room. Everyone introduce themselves. Start with Brad, please. Hi, I'm Brad McQuay with uh, Kona Brewing Systems sitting at my desk here in Abbotsford, British Columbia. All right. And Balbeer?
3: Yeah, it's Bell Beers to Do. I'm co-owner with Brad with the Koenig Brewing Systems, and I'm also in Abbotsford, British Columbia.
4: And John? Yeah, my name is John Legnard, and I'm the currently the brewmaster at the Blue Moon Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado. I've uh, been brewing beer and known Brad since about 1991 or 92, I believe.
2: Oh, that's great. We're crazy.
4: both young. So- <laughs> yeah. So, so Brad, it's it's, it's quite a
1: fine, you know. Um, there's so many young people and people that, that are learning and coming of age in the modern craft beer world. But for for those, for, for you guys, it, it was a different world. And I really enjoyed our the episode 565. And I talked with Joe Wiebe of BC Ale Trail and your friend Rob Liedel, the, the malt expert. Um, what are some of the stories you want to tell us about? Because we, we we've had a chance to talk in advance, but you, you've got yeah. this cr- crazy life of putting brewing systems in the Arctic and the tropics and Japan. Um, yeah. Get, just refresh us on how it all started because uh, this wasn't really a, an industry 40 years ago, was it?
2: No, not really. When I started on it, it, it was um, kind of a, a gleam in my eye. And uh, I had a taste of it. Uh, I was working in a, a little brew pub as a uh, uh, head brewer. And uh, because it was so new, a lot of people would visit from all over North America and everybody thought it was a cool idea. And they wondered, how the hell do you get into this? You know, what, what, you know, who do we go? Where do we go to get equipment? Where do we go to get training? And, and so I used to get asked, uh, to help people out. And so I started doing that. And the more I did it, the better I the better I got at it. In other words, I understood that things don't always go like you expect. And, um, uh, and i am mechanically inclined so it seemed to work quite well in the way of troubleshooting when we did things and i got involved in also the design of equipment and then started contracting to get people to build equipment and then pretty soon it, it, you know i i thought i'd gamble and step out on my own in other words i left the job i had and uh started a company up and uh Uh, thought uh, I could make a go of it. And, uh, and it was risky, you know, because I had uh, two young children and a disgruntled wife thought I was crazy. Uh, And I I say that, but actually, uh, I I did have that support at home. And uh, so um, when I did start the business up the first little while, first year or two, I was doing mostly sort of consulting work, but I found that there was more money and equipment than on the consulting side. So, um, I got involved more on the equipment design and manufacture and, you know, that led to more and more. And, one of the things I found that helped differentiate us was if I went out and actually worked on the equipment and then took notes and brought that back to our engineering people, we could make uh, improvements and make changes because, you know, we're actually, you know, I'm actually working on it and I'm the owner of the business and, uh, Things weren't quite right from an engineering point of view, or just you know we designed it, and built it a particular way, but it we use it a little differently. I could bring that information back, and and uh, that helped grow the business. And we ended up with you know inquiries from really around the world. And uh, one of the places I did work was uh, I got I had some there were expat Canadians living in Japan, and they contacted me, and I didn't know if they were real or not. But, um, Japan hadn't passed legislation quite yet to allow, um, microbreweries to exist. They, we didn't call them craft breweries back then, but, you know, and this was then breweries. the 1990s, right? Early nineties. Yes. Early nineties. But it was around 94. I think it was, uh, the, the era I'm talking about. And there's projects before that and projects after that, of course. And, uh, and I actually never thought of traveling to Japan. I, it wasn't um, high on my bucket list. Um, however, you know, if there's business to be had, I'm quite willing to go. And so I did. I went over there, and uh, we did a few projects. And everywhere I went, um, the the, the principal of a particular project would, would always brag about having the best fish in all of Japan. And so they would take <laughs> me out take me out for. And it was usually raw. You know, we had uh, sashimi or something. And, and it was always the best. So it didn't matter where I was going. Like, you know, we did a project uh, uh, west of uh, Tokyo called Nigata. over in Niigata. And I was told that's the best fish in all of Japan. So, you know, we had fresh fish over there. And then, then we did a project up in a couple of projects actually up uh, in Hokkaido, uh, one in Hakodate, and another one uh, outside of Sapporo. And same thing. I was told it was the best fish. Then we did another one down in in Okinawa, and uh, uh, and same thing. They have the best fish in all of Japan. So it was,
1: it,
2: you know, I could go over there, and I, I got to tell you, I was a very fussy eater in my younger days. You know, I I was squeamish. You know, if I didn't understand what it was, I wouldn't eat it. Well, I couldn't do that in Japan because, of course, they're feeding me everything exotic they could find, and uh, so I had to unzip my uh, North American brain and, and put in my travel brain and, and just eat what was fed. And I would eat like a, eat like a pig. I'd eat just stuff myself and I'll, I'd lose 10 pounds in Japan. I didn't gain any weight. And I was I was pounding food back and drinking beer and I still lost weight. and that is probably you know the type of diet they have compared to our diet in North America. So I found that <laughs> rather appealing to some degree. Because, well, it's quite quite uh, interesting that you you,
1: you started making uh, brewing systems, and next thing you know, you've spent a lot of time in Japan. Um, yeah, I. What, I did what about 10 the products. other? The, since we can talk about this one, the other cultural differences in Japan. Um, you know, you, you're there installing and training the the staff of the Japanese brewery. Uh,
2: Correct. How
1: how is that different from working in canada or
2: america well, well let's just back up a little bit uh, um, before i can uh well before i can actually uh, commission the equipment we, we have to do the installation part of it but just like any uh project um you know it's a construction site right so here we wear a high vis vest and we'll wear a hard hat and hard toe boots and all that sort of thing and japan's very similar you know you've got the hard hat on and all that sort of thing but when you go inside the building you wear slippers. You take your hard-toe boots off, and you and you and you wear slippers going into the construction site. You know, it's just a, it was quite different because you know we wouldn't allow that here. You just you you can't do that just because it's a, uh, an indoor facility and it's still under construction. You'd still have to wear hard-toe boots. But over there, our guys were required to take their uh, take their boots off, and they would, you know they'd have communal slippers they'd put on and that sort of thing. So it was kind of strange, you know, in in that regard um and uh training was interesting um training was interesting in that the 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 difference in cultures is that here if i was training an individual i mean basically the the ownership would leave him alone and he was responsible for you know recipe formulation running the the beer through um to completion and that sort of thing and over there one of the first things um i ran into this was actually down south at, at a brewery in okinawa Uh, we would have these meetings and uh, the president of the company was there and the general manager and and it was all in a, in a pecking order from top to bottom. And, uh, and I'd be there uh, as well. And I'd listen to the president and he would be telling the the people down the line, okay, well, if you guys brewed last, you know, Tuesday, okay, we're going to, we're going to transfer on uh, next Tuesday, which would have been, you know, let's say uh, 10 days or something like that. And, uh, and they would all nod like this. And, I would look at them and, and kind of make a funny face cuz I'm saying well, wait a minute we we, we had a uh, fermentation issues with that thing it's not it's not ready yet and uh, but you know they would bow and, and they were going to transfer it when they were told by the president and the president has no clue he he doesn't know the first thing about making <laughs> and uh, but he was telling them what they're going to do and they were going to they were going to blindly do it so I would speak up and I would say no that's not going to happen and they would all suck air they'd be sucking wind like this and they're going, Oh no. But because I'm a guy, Jim, that I could, I could do that. And I'd get away with it. If they, if they didn't. I mean, they you're, you're,
1: the, you're the boss.
2: Well, no, I'm the foreigner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're tolerant of the foreigner, you know, because he doesn't know their culture. And, uh, so that's, that's how I was treated, but, um, they, they didn't argue with me. So, you know, like I'd, I'd explain to them, I said, no, we can't do that. I mean, the beer's ready when it's ready. It's not, it's not ready because you say it's ready. It's, you know, we have to, you know, make our measurements, you know, check the gravity, look at the fermentation, you know, and and we, we couldn't transfer it until we actually, you know, had crash cooled it and, you know, separated some of the yeast out and stuff like that. And, uh, and I'd I'd explain that. And you could see in the mannerism, nobody was comfortable with that. They were all worried that uh, the president of the company was going to lose his cool on me or something like that. But, Generally speaking, he just bit his lip and nodded and uh, would would have, would agree to it. But that was the sort of thing I'd run into, and it was quite frequent that there was a, a collision of cultures, you might say. And uh, and it's I have to keep reminding myself I'm the visitor. Now, I'm not I'm not you know I'm not there forever. I'm only there for a little bit, and uh, so I, I try not to be a bully about it. And, uh, and and tried to be gentle. But it was a lot of fun. I found it a very interesting. And I saw a, a big part of it. And uh, I found uh, the Japanese people very, very gentle people and very easy, fun loving, uh, easy to get along with and that sort of thing. And, and I was outside of the major centers, mostly, it was mostly out in the countryside. So I don't know why they would do that. They would spend millions on these projects and put them out in the middle of nowhere, and no one could go visit. <laughs> but to to actually get a license to do that, they had to be deep pocketed, you know, because, you know, I don't think we ever did a project that was less than, say, three or four million dollars. It was just, and that was a lot of money back wow. in those days. And what, what size systems were you putting in then? Oh, they were small. Uh, the biggest one we put in was uh, a, t- it's a 20 hectoliter system, which is, you know, between a 15 and a 20 barrel system. And uh, that was the biggest uh, we put in over there. And that would have probably been the most expensive one we put in as well. But yeah. You know, that was interesting. I yeah. mean, it really was. And we're we're yeah. going to
1: bounce We're going to bounce around for a minute, Brad. I'm going to get jump to sure. Balbier. Balbier, uh, when, when did you first start working with with Brad? And you're an engineer, so so how did you get into brewing systems?
3: Well, yeah, yeah, I just uh right right after graduating university, you know, I did a, you know, a few odd jobs just to kind of get by, and while I was still looking for something that I'm kind of passionate about into the engineering field. So Actually, it was a, a acquaintance of the family. Who told me that there's a company out in Abbotsford uh, looking for an engineer, and I said, "Yeah, okay, maybe I'll go down." I mean, there's no posting, nothing. I just, you know, grabbed my resume, you know, headed out here one day, uh, and uh, um, and you know, came, knocked on the door, and said, "Yeah, this is who I am." Introduced myself, uh, and this would have been back in summer of 1994. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I basically uh, spoke to Brad at the time, to, you, know, uh, you know, mentioning this is what I'm looking for. And I've done my mechanical engineering degree. Uh, and this was from uh, University of Calgary, actually. Uh, and then, you know, as talking to Brad, one thing I still remember is that it wasn't just somebody that took my resume and saying, we'll call you later. Uh, he actually took the time to show me around. I mean, so he took me down to the shop uh, kind of, you know, showed what they did, uh, you know, and that was, you know, that really stuck with me because I'm saying, here's somebody that's taking the time to show me. So hey, I might have my way in here. Uh, and then by the time we did the tour of the shop and the office, you know, we came back, sat in his office and it was basically a discussion of when I can start. Uh, so, so that was, uh, that was really good. So that, so that's really how I got my door, uh, you know, open door to, into the brewing industry, which I knew nothing about. I mean, as I said, I was just an engineering student, uh, but then, you know, working alongside Brad and, you know, uh, starting to design the equipment and, and everything else. So, you know, you learn as you go. And uh, it, was a, it was a really fun industry to, to be a part of, that's for sure.
1: When, when you started Balbir, what, what, what most surprised you about the, the brewing systems and the technology? Uh, was it further ahead than you expected? Did you have to create a lot of new, new, new
3: ways of working? Well, I guess uh, for me, it was like, you know, coming from out of school, there's a lot of things, especially with the shop at the time, that was quite uh, manual. I mean, yes, there were drawings that were being done, but the drawings were very rudimentary. And the culture in the shop was more or less that they knew how to build the stuff just off of napkins. Uh, so they, they didn't really need drawings. Uh, so that's kind of what I faced uh, being, you know, a you know, young engineer trying to tell these you know, older fabricators what to do. Uh, so, so there was a bit of a challenge there. Uh, and then, and, you know, slowly I've sort of, you know, as the drawings got, uh, made the drawings a lot more detail. Uh, and then the shop quickly learned that if they kind of did something out of step, that they would be making mistakes. So we, I really got him sort of relying on the drawings and the way it should be, because now you're, you know, you have documents that they need to follow versus having uh, just legacy, uh, you, know, informa- you know, like talent that the, you know, the fabricator can take with them if all of a sudden we had that fabricator wasn't working with us anymore. So the detail on the drawings, that was something I really spent a lot of time on, as well as uh, doing like process flow diagrams, like P&IDs, which didn't exist at the time. So that was something, you know, I remember trying to track down even symbols for that in, in, in making the P&IDs, um, putting it all onto one page. And a lot of that actually I did for myself as well, because I wanted to understand the whole process. And, and so this became, you know, one of my things that just do the P&ID for the whole brewery. So I can understand it, but but it also became very valuable for the client. And so they can also share with their uh, contractors on, you know, what the utility requirements are for the brewery and how it's going to flow. And for the client on, he knows exactly what he's going to get, you know, with the system. Uh, So, yeah, so that's how things evolved. And definitely like Brad was mentioning earlier about feedback coming back from the site. So, you know, as he would go and install or, or commission a system, you know, that would come back to us and uh, we, we would say, oh, yeah, you know, that makes sense. So let's Im- let's improve this and, and make it better. Uh, I guess over the years, you know, some of the systems were small. We definitely made bigger and better systems uh, and, and then d- improved them in face in of, you know, automation. Uh, so they're not as mechanical. But like I said, that was all based on budget and what the client can do. So, you know, we had a wide range of, you know, what we can do and offer.
1: That's great. So now, now we're gonna, just going to, Go to John as well. So, um, when Brad and I had a pre-chat last week, he really wanted to talk about your project at, at Coors Field um, in uh, in Denver. So tell us about how, how you and you and Brad first met and were working on that project because there must yes. have been a lot of challenges putting in a brewery t- into a baseball stadium.
4: Yeah, more than you would imagine. And what's interesting is, like I said, I met Brad in the early nineties. I worked at and started up a small startup in Fort Collins, Colorado, so about an hour north of Denver called H.C. Burger. And Brad was already the go-to guy at that point for a couple of the other – I think one of the brew pubs you helped do was Cooper Smith's Brad. And then I think you helped with Odell's. And he was a consultant at the time, and he basically farmed out the tank manufacturing to somebody else. But then Brad would show up and kind of teach people – how to brew and tell them, you know, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And I I do recall that was always a reoccurring theme with Brad is he seemed very calm. His demeanor was always calm. And, you know, these people have spent their life savings or, you know, crumbled together as much money as they could to get a brewery off the ground. And when something didn't work, Brad was always pretty calm about it. Um, So kind of fast forward in the the early 90s, that was kind of the heyday of startups. Uh, The brewery I started in Colorado was the 19th brewery overall. And that included an Anheuser-Busch plant and a Coors plant in Golden, Colorado. And what happened from there was it, it exploded in the front range of Denver and Denver Metro. Um, there's 400 ish breweries in the state right now. And during my time at the brewery in Fort Collins, um, I answered to help wanted ad in the newspaper and it was for a brewery that Coors was going to open. And unbeknownst to me, they had figured out to call Brad and get Newland systems. I don't know what system number that was that you were brewing that we brewed on at this or built at the Sandlot, Brad, but it was um, 94 order, 95 delivery date. And the craziest thing about that, I would say, is that is the only brewery that I'm aware of, Brad, that has opened up absolutely on time. I don't know how many, I mean, think about how many, how many of you opened up? Uh, There's hundreds. There's hundreds. Yeah, I
2: I don't, I really don't. So
1: let's talk more about this opening because I have a funny story. Maybe seven or eight years ago, there's a woman named Jen Swartman, she was a co-host on the show for a while. She worked at the Blind Tiger Ale House in New York. She's now partners in Fluid State, which is a California beer bar. Um, but she told a story about about the opening of Sandlot. She said that back then, Coors went out and hired all the best beer people in
4: Colorado and made it was, – was it originally like an experimental brew house? it it was kind of experimental but let me tell you about Jen Schwartzman's history and i so jen schwartzman's boyfriend and i who worked at breckenridge brewery in denver were roommates when i moved to denver so i know jen very well <laughs> she probably forgot to mention that part of the story <laughs> um yeah so well, I, was, I, like, I was waiting you know, i
1: knew that one day this would come full circle cuz cuz it was one of the most fascinating stories we ever heard on
4: the show yeah so what it was was the coors family, Coors Brewing Company said, Hey, we're, we're building this baseball stadium. It's going to have our name on it. We probably should put, put a brewery in it. And unbeknownst to me, they placed an ad in the newspaper for help wanted. Cause there was no, you know, there was no monster jobs or, you know, any of that, you know, LinkedIn or anything. And so I answered the help wanted ad and was interviewed twice. Um, and the funny thing is I didn't get the head brewer job that I wanted the brewmaster job that went to somebody else that, uh, Brad and I both knew. And what happened was is he was handed a stack of resumes. He saw my resume and said, oh, this guy knows this stuff. I should see if he wants the the head brewer job, not the brewmaster job. And so I was hired in March of 1995 before it was actually fully functioning and open to go down and basically get things running, brew the first batches of beer. And I mean, Brad was there. There were a couple other the the Newlands guys there and a team of engineers that were telling us this wasn't going to work. And Brad, with his calm demeanor, saying, we'll be fine. And I, I believe that uh, the brewer Tom Hale and I actually made everything work on a Saturday afternoon once everyone else left for the week. We kind of said, All right, let's experiment. <laughs> let's, let's see what's going to happen here. And we finally got the louder to work. We got, because this was a, you know, a three vessel, 10 barrel brew house. Um, you know, for the time, it was pretty, pretty up to date, had pneumatic valves and stuff. But, uh, you know, we were, we were making beer in a construction zone that wasn't quite open, but had literally an immovable opening date because baseball in the U S it comes and comes in the spring and it's not like you can delay it till March or April because, or from March to April, because you're not ready. So we had beer on tap that, that first baseball game, March of 95 um, inside Coors field. And it was, it was a task that's pretty monumental. And I think, you know, one thing people need to remember is, you know, Coors was awful forward thinking back in the day to really spend their money on this, you know emerging craft business or microbrewery business and they did go out and they hired people from outside because they were aware that they didn't know they didn't know what they didn't know but they knew enough to know that they probably should hire somebody yeah so let's
1: let's hear about this project so what, what were some of the challenges and some anecdotes about opening this brewery in a baseball stadium brad and maybe, and maybe Balbir can also add
2: in if if he was involved in any engineering or anything. Yeah, he he would have been just brand new, but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, one one of the challenges was the 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 building was existing. It was um, that well, brick structure was was part of an old warehouse. Yeah, wasn't over, it, John, yeah, it's
4: over a hundred years old now. I think it's one hundred and ten now. So yeah, it was a hundred almost a hundred years old when we did it. But it was
2: two foot thick concrete and brick walls. Yeah, And and so it was very limited space and where we're going to put it. And there was also licensing issues that came up and, you know, and then Coors would have a whole legal team on it um, trying to figure out how they're going to do this from a licensing point of view, because we would make the beer, but, um, you know, in other words, Coors makes the beer, but they, they, they couldn't, they weren't the, the, the concession manager. In other words, they were not the dispensing, they weren't dispensing it. Yeah. And if you remember, John, we had to put a, a few, I think it was three feet of pipe in or something like that, that yeah, it, there was, theoretically it, was sold to Coors Distributing. Yeah. Distribution, right? We called, it the,
4: we called it the distributor in the wall. We had a section of pipe with a flow meter on it, and the billing happened at that section of pipe. It transferred ownership from the brewery, the, re- the brewery, the manufacturer, to the distributor, which is Coors Distributing Company, to the retailer, which was Aramark, who then sold it over the bar by the glass. So yeah, that was a creative, a creative way to do that, and that was uh, one of the legal guys, Norm Kramer. Were, were we there valves that me- measured the flow of of the liquid? Yep. Yeah, we had ounce ounce flow meters. So every ounce poured, we would convert that into half barrels or kegs and bill them for the kegs once a
2: week. Because it was serving, it was serving tanks. Yeah, connected. Before we got to that stage, there was, um, you know, uh, some unlucky fell up at Coors Engineering. Um, very very experienced senior engineer very sharp guy named Mike mefford was given the task of um, uh, working working with us uh, to do the design and, and that sort of thing and and he was really out of his element because he could he could design and build you know a major brewery that could do 10 million barrels a year but at a brew pub level that was not something he had ever done before so it was a lot of fun working with Mike him and I spent Many a night pushing circles. <laughs> we actually cut circles out of paper, and we're pushing them around on top of a blueprint to see how we're going to fit all this stuff in. And came up with these great ideas and things like yeah, that. Yeah,
4: it's it's a really tight space. The sandlot space is somewhere around seventeen hundred square feet, and we managed at one point to brew three thousand barrels out of that space uh, for the baseball stadium. And the headspace is extremely low. There's one door that we, we call the duck door. It's about five feet tall and you have to get everything turn the tanks on their side. Well, now you do because you built it, you built put the tanks in when the walls were down, but uh to get anything in there it's super tight, it's extremely difficult. And you know, I'd say with Brad and the team at Newlands got really creative with making it all happen. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, even uh I remember Uh, we ran into a problem with uh, refrigeration. And what it was is that we were kind of put over the barrel in that the city of Denver wouldn't allow just anybody to do the glycol piping for the fermentation vessels. We had to have, and the bright tanks downstairs too, because we had to have a locally certified refrigeration company. And, 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 and because the time frame was so tight, it was difficult to bid that out and then, and then actually have them do it on time. So we got this bright idea. We would get some of the master tradesmen out of Golden to come down that are the Coors tradesmen and bring those down. And anyway, one of the inspectors found out about it, and this became a union issue. Um, so what we had to do was hire. We went to the union hall, and we hired one union guy. To come and sit on a bucket. Well, the Coors guys (laughs) did the install, and and no, the guy was very good about it. He helped. He would hold things and things like that. But he he wasn't capable of of doing it. These guys were excellent tradesmen, and they put it together basically in a weekend. Put it all together. I don't know if you remember that, John, but that was
4: yeah. And well, and we had the same problem. We have a a tube that they wanted us to bury in the ground, a four-inch stainless steel pipe that feeds our uh, uh, grain silo. And this, this no, nozzles out on the street, so a truck can pull up and pneumatically fill the silo. But it's 150, 100, 150 feet from the road, and they wanted that buried. Well, we had to. We had the pipe section delivered from Coors. We waited, I don't know, a week or two, Brad, for them to weld up the pipe, and we laid it all out and said, "Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna mock this up for you. It'll be in place. Just come by and weld it." Oh, we can't. It's break time. Oh, we can't. It's a weekend. And I think one day on lunch, Kent Rykow welded all. 10 sections together and we pushed it in the hole and they came back and they were like, who did that?
2: We're like, I don't remember who was here. It was some guy with a hard hat. Yeah. I remember that John, because that almost shut the whole place down. Oh that yeah. Was, that, do you remember that was, that was a, that was a, because that was a joint site. Like it was union and non-union working side mm-hmm. by side. The union was threatened to shut the whole place down. It was a, uh, it was a big, big incident over that.
1: Well, that, that uh, that's a great, in- I'm going to jump That That's a great intro to, uh, what we're talking about, we're going to bounce around a little bit and cover a couple more exotic regions. Um, but first, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. And now we're going to read the uh, beer haiku of the week. This is a new thing from our friend at Awkward Haiku. He's writing beer haikus every week for us. So this is beer haiku week number four. What is a real beer? That is a very big question to answer in high. Okay, we'll talk to you in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio, and I'll be moderating an amazing virtual event with Angry Orchard and Heritage Radio Network on May 26th. We'll be celebrating the release of the new first-of-its-kind book, American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. I'll be in conversations with the authors... Daniel Pucci and Craig Cavallo then we'll welcome Angry Orchard head cider maker Ryan Burke for myth busting about this beverage and an interactive cider tasting when you order a ticket you'll also receive a copy of the book visit heritageradionetwork.org cider plus you'll find a link to purchase a hand-selected cider bundle from Angry Orchard so you can taste along with us learn more at heritageradionetwork.org cider Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So, we're talking with Brad and uh, the craft beer legend and Koenig Brewing System. So, Brad, we were just talking uh, with John at, uh, at Blue Moon, but let's go to some other exotic locales. You got a great story about, you know, you actually put a brewery in the Arctic. I want to hear about Correct. that story. Was that yellow? What's that called? Yellow. Yeah, nice yellow knife.
2: It's, it's it's actually not quite in the Arctic. It's just below the Arctic circle. Like if you go up and, uh, uh, up North in Canada, you get into the, what's called the Northwest territories. Um, and, uh, those, those kind of borders change a little bit over time, but, um, that's what it was back then. And it's right next to a lake called great slave Lake. And, uh, it gets cold up there, and uh, I can tell you there there is no mountains. It's uh, you can watch your dog run away for two days if you got binoculars, <laughs> and and because it's so cold and barren, it'll come back if it doesn't get eaten by a polar bear or something like that up there. And but anyway, I, I was approached by uh, a couple of gentlemen that were uh, keenly interested uh, in putting a brewery in, and thought that you know it made good commercial sense and and all that sort of thing. And I asked a bunch of questions about you know. That because it didn't makes it didn't make commercial sense to me if you think of it because you're way way up in the middle of nowhere so everything if you're going to package your beer you've got to bring everything in whether it's cartons bottles whatever you've got to bring all that in and it's a one way trip so it's expensive because the the truck is bobtailing it back it's not pulling anything back and um, you know raw materials are the same way and then that sort of thing and in Canada. Um, even now, but back then, too, we were highly taxed. You know, I mean, we we're paying about 10 times the taxes that you pay in the United States on beer. And uh, so I, I just felt that, you know, on top of the tax and then on top of everything else, that uh, this thing is a non-starter because you're, they've already got beer up there. Like the, the, the people up there aren't going to be tremendous craft beer drinkers. They're going to drink, you know, uh, the typical Canadian beverage of the day, which was Labatt's Blue or Molson Canadian or something like that. That's what they would have drank. And if you produced a beer, you might get lucky and and get a portion of it. But anyway, these guys assured me that they had, you know, ticked all the boxes and done all their homework and talked to all the government officials and they were going to get one heck of a break on taxes and other things. So we went ahead and built the brewery, shipped it up, and then I followed up along with um, one of our tradesmen and uh, was involved in. Uh, Doing the install work and things like that, and that's when I discovered how difficult it is to work in a place like that. You know, I I was there in in January. Uh, It was January, and I always remember putting my hand out in front of me with my thumb and index finger measuring how far above the horizon the sun was. And I think it was about an inch and a half. And uh, and that was you know like ten o'clock in the morning or noon or something like that. And that's as high as it got. It didn't get any higher than that. So the sun would come up and. And briefly peak and then disappear again. So you had a few hours of, of dusk is really what it was. You know, it was you barely had any light at all. And it was cold. And, that, and there was always a steady wind blowing. And uh, so that was kind of interesting. And the tradesmen, when they pulled up with their vans or trucks or whatever, they never turned them off. They just sat there and idled all day. And I often wondered about that. But then I soon learned that, you know, because it was so cold, if you shut the thing off, you may not get it started again. But the, the building itself was on jacks, you know, because of the frost heaves and things like that. And so to keep it level, that's what they do. They get in there and jack this thing every now and then. And, and I don't know the details behind it. I just remembered it was something like that. And also things like uh, that we take for granted is, that, you know, we needed a steam boiler to generate steam for the brewing system. Well, what do you feed the boiler? Because you, they don't have natural gas up there. And if you try to use propane, it just gels. You, it doesn't flow. It's too cold will not will not evaporate wow. so, so uh they have to use uh, a furnace oil that's blended with methanol to keep it from gelling as well when it gets real cold so that was uh, you know that, that all of these things took time to get going and and even water but they was still
1: they still wanted a brewery knowing well, what they were too up late at,
2: it's too late at this time to, i mean they uh <laughs> this is installation time and now that, that's not the time to change your mind so it was uh It was kind of interesting anyway, and uh, even effluent, like your sewer, well, we didn't have sewer because you'd have to excavate down into the permafrost, and then it has to, and I don't remember all the details, but the piping has to be insulated, and generally speaking, it has to be heated as well, because otherwise, your effluent will freeze in the pipe, and same as water delivery, if they're delivering domestic water to you, it was heated, so if you think of that, everything is expensive, because you're- drinking water has to be heated so it doesn't freeze in the ground and as huge insulated pipe, all of that just adds the cost. So anyway, this is where I want to bring Eric Warner in is because he was there uh, doing the startup and John, you know, Eric and, and probably remember the story. I think uh, Eric wrote about it, about going out on Great Slave Lake and, and cutting a hole in the ice and. You know pumping water out and breaking the pump because they weren't fast enough and stuff like that and bringing water back to the brewery yeah and i think didn't the truck
4: freeze and every truck load subsequent to the first one was 20 percent less because there was ice forming on the inside of the
2: walls yeah <laughs> like i like I was, I was telling uh i was telling jimmy this that you know when i first got there you know i'd never really I, i'd been in cold weather before like in saskatchewan and stuff like that in the wintertime and which I thought was really cold because it was down around, you know, minus 35 or something like that. And anyway, when I got there, it was pretty chilly even for uh, uh, Yellowknife standards. They, uh, they, they you know, it was around minus 40, something like that. And uh, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go for a walk outside. I've never, you know, really felt this. And this is right in the town sort of thing. And I got all bundled up in my best, you know, skiing gear because that's all I had for snow gear. And uh, decided to take a hike around the block. And uh, I got about halfway around the block and I thought my knees were going to freeze up. I could barely walk. <laughs> and I couldn't breathe because my nose was all frozen up and, and it was starting to hurt and things like that. And, oh, and I finally got back and I thought, boy, what a stupid idea that was. And I unzipped my coat to warm up because it was so cold that the jacket was keeping the cold in. I had to let the heat in from the lobby of that hotel. And, and while I'm in there shaking my head and pulling my toque off and stuff like that, a local native guy comes in, local Inuit, and he he, he comes in and he's dressed like this. He's got a, a, a jeans on, he's got running shoes, a T-shirt and a blue jean jacket, no hat, no gloves, and his hands are in his pockets. And he comes in and he stomps his feet and he's looking at me and he goes, yeah, a little chilly out tonight, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, I'm thinking a little chilly. He, he's, he doesn't even have a parka on, <laughs> you know, and I'm all dressed up and I damn here froze this guy. So Brad, so
1: you, you've, you were installing a brewery where it gets as cold as negative 40
2: degrees.
1: Yeah. That's actually
2: where uh, Fahrenheit and Celsius meet when you go downhill. Wow. Can I ask Balbeard to, to, to weigh in, uh, in terms of an
1: engineer, Is there anything you want to add to the challenges that you guys would face for not just installing but brewing in such cold weather?
3: Yeah, I guess you have to kind of take into account all of the, you know, temperatures. I mean, whether it's cold or whether it's hot in terms of insulating your vessels and, uh, you know, know, heat tracing, piping. So all that comes into play. So the location matters, even elevation. Like, I mean, in Denver in terms of, you know, boilers and, you know, making sure you let – The boiler manufacturers know that it's going to go to, you know, you know, uh, a mile high, you know, a city uh, that all of that comes into play. So, yeah, you know, that little minor detail uh, is is important because otherwise things will not work properly or things won't flow properly. So uh, having all that information up front and knowing where the location is, is very critical. Well, actually, you brought up a good point. Let's go back to Denver.
1: Um, I'm an East Coast guy. And when I look at recipes whether it's for boiling water or, or baking, it always mentions this, this high elevation. What's different at you know 5,000 feet up in Denver when you're making beer?
4: The partial pressure of the atmosphere is less at elevation, and so you boil things at a lower temperature. So the appearance of the water in the wort is it is bubbling and it is boiling, but in reality, the temperature is, I want to say for us, you know, if 100, 100 C or 210 boiling is like 98 C and like 205, 206, 207. So you get a different reaction on all of your hot side process stuff, and it does impact how the beer functions. Um, it's similar. We notice um, we don't boil under pressure. We boil clear to atmosphere for like the kettle and stuff. We notice on low pressure days. So we've got a storm front moving through. You get a sig- more significant boil off. You you basically get uh, more concentrated wort. If you're looking for a gravity, it might boil off two tenths of a degree more. So things like that. Um, we're at you know five thousand feet in elevation. There are breweries in Colorado over nine, almost ten thousand. Brad, is there? There's probably a couple in South America that are pushing twelve to fifteen, aren't there?
2: Yeah, I don't know uh John on, on the South America but yeah, you're uh locally where you're at, don't tell you right, that's 9000 feet, isn't it? Yeah,
4: yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, so it's uh yeah, yeah. No, it has a big makes- impact, but even as bo- as uh, Balbier was saying, it has a, an impact on not just not just the product and not, in other words the the beer or the wort, but also like the boiler has to be derated. When you get over 2000 feet, you derate the boiler 4% for each 2000 each each 1000 feet I think it is after that. Over 2,000 feet, and what does that yeah, mean, I, Brad? D-rate, d-rate. That means that you get less out of it. Yeah, you know, so it, it's like horsepower. It's like saying uh, I got 4% less horsepower for each, you know, thousand feet above 2,000. So, so at how how do you compensate? Do you have to? Uh, you have to go bigger. You have to go with a bigger boiler.
4: Yeah, bigger, bigger boiler for the same elevation or brew size, depending on the the total elevation of your brewery. And I think that's one of the things that you know Balbir and Brad will tell you. No two projects are exactly the same and they can walk into a project. And I mean, I've got a checklist. I've done plenty of projects and seen enough breweries. I checklist. Okay. What's your, what's your tap water like? Where are you going to run your effluent? What's your electricity to the building look like? What's your, you know, what's your exposure on the building? If you're going to have outside dining, how do you get the trucks in here? I mean, there is a million different things that I would say new owners don't really look at, but hiring somebody like Brad and Val they know to ask those questions. So it, it makes a difference when you hire somebody with experience. Now, did I know all that stuff when I started? Absolutely not. Can I look at breweries now and go? They either had to do that because they couldn't fit it in any other way, or they planned it that way, and that was really poor planning.
2: Yeah, yeah that, you, you run into a lot of people that um, jump into this business, and they'll do about six, eight breweries like that, and and they really do think they're geniuses after that because you know they've they, they've made all those mistakes that we we could have helped them out on, you know, even. As simple as prevailing winds, right, John? You know, yep. it's handy to know which way the prevailing winds are. People yeah. Don't, don't don't put your that. spent
4: yeah don't put your spent grain tank upwind of your patio. That's a <laughs> that's a key. <laughs> uh,
1: so you, got, you must have a whole check. Well, let let's say so your your challenge you, you you were up near the Arctic, and then you you said you you put a brewery in uh, Saint Martin in the Caribbean.
2: That's
1: what, right. What, I was just
2: it was We warm. need to get warm. I'm, I'm cold. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it was warm. But, but it, it sounds it, like a great idea. Let's open a brewery in the Caribbean. Why not,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but it was the same scenario, though. I, I, I asked the ownership group, um, why? And uh, uh, and a lot of it was, I think these people were just ahead of their time. Um, it's not that I didn't like the idea, but when you visit these places, the, the resident population – back then wasn't that large. It might've been 10,000 people on St. Martin at that time and uh, versus a hundred thousand today. And of the 10,000, how many of that are going to drink the local beer? Um, You know, unless, and and they will, if it's cheap enough, Uh, otherwise they're going to gravitate to what the common beer was, which was Heineken actually on, because it's part of the Netherlands Antilles. So Heineken was the de facto beer uh, on St. Martin. And, You know, uh, so, you know, you you go through that with these people, but they're convinced that this is a good idea and and they're going to go ahead with it, um, you know, and they need a lot of help. So you do what you can. Uh, But putting it on um, a Caribbean island was actually no different than uh, putting it up in in the high Arctic uh, other than temperature. There's the same challenges and same engineering challenges like Ballbeer was alluding to with insulation and things like that. Well, all of a sudden your, your tanks now are in a tropical environment and, and the other thing, it's salty, you know, because it, it, we're at we're at sea level. We're not we're on what was called Back Bay. We're very close to the uh, uh, in Phillipsburg, very close to the beach. And uh, so, you know, when they get storms and that sort of thing, basically, we're getting salty air blowing through the brewery. So, um, you know, those are all challenges uh, of putting a putting a brewery together in a Caribbean place. You know, having that ambient temperature of uh, you know close to 30 degrees C and you know 90 some percent humidity all year long doesn't it
1: so what what is like what does the salt do to it i mean i was in jamaica uh,
2: years ago i I, does it rust does it corrode yeah it's it's hard on certain kinds of stainless steel um it's it's uh we call it uh chloride corrosion or uh embrittlement and uh and it 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 is hard on it and if you don't know you're stainless, you can use the wrong kind. Normally we would use like a 316 stainless in that sort of environment on the exterior, and then you can get away with 304 on the inside. But uh, much like uh, the Arctic though, the the, the water there um, they they didn't have a good source of water. So the water was reverse osmosis water. So it's you know taking salt water out of the salt chuck, running it through an RO system and capturing water that way, which is very, very expensive because it's a lot of energy to do that. And they don't have a lot of energy there because they have to bring in diesel fuel to, to fuel the diesel generators that would provide that electricity. And uh, so that was expensive just for water. And then there was no sewer. We had no effluent, so we had to put an effluent treatment plant in just to deal with the floor drains and things like that. And, uh, I learned about all about how effluent treatment plants don't work that well with just brewery wastewater. You have to add some other stuff to it to make them make them work good. And but even during installation, you know, just simple things like uh, we need argon gas for welding stainless steel. And normally we, if we run out a of bottle of gas here, we, you know, we just call up the welding shop and they deliver a couple more. Well, it doesn't work like that down there. If you were out of uh, back then anyway, if you were out of argon, um, it might take you two weeks to get couple more bottles because it was coming either from Miami or it come from Puerto Rico. Um, there was no uh, readily available source for a lot of this stuff. And uh, there, you know, in a pinch, you might have gone down to one of the um, boat docks there and, and found a stainless welder that had a bottle that you could borrow. But generally speaking, we were on our own and that applied to everything, you know, hardware wise and things like that. And then from a staffing point of view too, the the local people were a little different. Uh, back into because they were used to more of um, a hospitality type industry there you know because it's a tourist destination so not a not an industrial um, manufacturing type scenario so when you hired local people which is what they were trying to do the the ownership of this they were um, you know trying to provide employment for the local people and stuff like that Uh, what what they did is they would sit on chairs and watch me, and uh, that was their level of participation. They thought I was doing a pretty good job, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> they probably they said you did a great job, Brad. Yeah, yeah, good job. I'm going outside for a smoke, and, uh, and that, that was kind of what it was. And then we, you know, and uh, one day uh, there's this, this sh- shrieking scream, and uh, and I'm going, what the heck is that? And anyway, one of the principals, one of the owners. He was in the brewery and a rat ran across his foot. And so he he learned that uh, breweries are a great feeding place for rats. You know, there's rain <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and, and so uh, that reminds me of the other brewery I was thinking of that we had snakes in it. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get to that one. I'm going to jump in. Just,
1: <laughs> yeah. One, one uh, before we talk about the snakes, we're going to um, talk about. So you guys are in Canada. Like I, there's, there's manufacturers in different countries of brewing systems now. I remember, I don't know, six years ago or so, I was at uh, Two Roads Brewery in Connecticut when they were just, they were still f- getting the final touches in of their new system. And I remember I was there with, with Phil Markowski and, and it, it was it was a German firm and the German workers had stayed on. So this is the only only way I kind of know what you have to do. Um, how do you compare yourselves to the 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 german firms and the chinese the chinese manufacturers because obviously this is a very competitive field you're in and there's a lot of international players
2: yeah Uh, any anybody can build um you know bend metal is is what we when we say a, a metal bending we're referring to the fabrication side of it anybody can do that you can do it in a garage you can do it in a big facility and that sort of thing that's actually not what sets us apart. And, and John can allude, was kind of alluding to that. And it's it's everything else you know. It's, it's the little details in what you do with your equipment, how you manufacture, how you put it together, how you test it even. Like one of the things we used to do that no one else was doing is we would do a factory acceptance test here before we shipped it. So we actually would put it together and test it and then send it out or re- disassemble it and reassemble it on site. But it was already tested in the factory before we shipped it out. And others are doing that now. But when we were doing it, not many others were doing that. You'd get a system and that was it.
4: Well, and that's a really good time for the brewer to come visit. You get some hands-on training. You get a real look at what it does. And then if you don't like something, that's a really good place to change it because you're still in the factory. I mean, I did I did that with our pilot system and I think it worked, it worked out pretty well. But I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that people like Brad and Balbeer bring to the table is continuous improvement. They're always looking to ways to make something better just because they built the best brewery last year doesn't mean it's going to be the best brewery this year. So they've always increased the automation. They've got a really good eye for safety now, which I think there's a really big kind of resurgence for that. And the customer service, I, I tell people this all the time, I can pick up the phone. It's me calling Brad, but he picks up the phone no matter who calls. So, I mean, I think that's a really big part of the jet the jet the chinese don't do that and the, the germans don't do that they're make an appointment and we'll be there in two weeks yeah you know
1: and and brad you know you've been doing this so long i i think a couple of years ago you you almost retired uh but you you, yeah, you I mean, can I never mean, retire
2: I, I, can you you can't yeah. Never retire oh, yeah <laughs> yeah you, you, you do make mistakes in life but i had to try it you know i, I had <laughs> to uh, i had to try retirement and then uh, realized i was bored silly and uh you Know, I was going to hang out in breweries anyway, so I might as well just go back into business. So, and that's what I've done. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people appreciate that too, which is kind of nice. No, yeah, so. we're, we're glad you're back. You know, you, you,
1: you're filling this whole void of craft beer history that we're going to mine a lot more. Um, well, let's yeah, jump. And, you know, let me jump to snakes, I want to hear about snakes. <laughs> the brewery with snakes, because you mentioned the rats. Yeah, brew the, with snakes. The snakes.
2: It was a uh, we got a call. I don't know. It was probably twelve, a dozen years ago or more, and it was in uh, Delaware. And it was this this guy that wanted to put a brewery in, and uh, you know, and it started off as a probably. I don't know. I don't think it was an internet inquiry. I think he actually phoned. This guy phoned, and and uh, and he probably phoned everybody else and talked to everybody else. But I I gave him the time of day and and uh, explained to him that it wasn't as complicated as some people make out, and you know you know, you, you, can learn. And, but anyway, I, I ended up visiting his location and it was a chicken coop and <laughs> that's where he wanted to put the brewery. And it was really chicken a coop. chicken coop A chicken barn. You know, it's uh <laughs> wasn't, it was, I don't know, 30 feet across and, you know, 60, 80 feet long, something like that. And, uh, uh, and I think the floor was dirt. I don't even think, I don't <laughs> even think he had concrete floors in it yet. <laughs> And, uh, but, but he did, he put concrete floors in and he did put floor drains in, but his budget was tight. And I remember this, he put floor drains in, but he, you got to laugh, John, when you're talking about safety, he he didn't put, (laughs) he didn't put grating over the floor drains. So we got these slotted floor drains that were ankle breakers and, and, uh, we actually, uh, ended up putting like two by six or something over top of it. And so it didn't drain very well like that, but at least you, uh, (laughs) at least you didn't break your ankle on it. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting, but you know, so you can imagine this thing is right at grade level, and it's kind of swampy over there in the middle of uh, uh, Delaware. Uh, over as near Georgetown, I think it was, and uh, and you know, and it it gets humid and stuff like that in the summertime, and and that's actually when we did the startup. It was good and warm in there, and uh, every day we'd go in there, and we had these big. I don't I don't even remember what kind of snakes they were. There were big black snakes. They're probably about four feet long, five feet long. And, and, uh, I don't like snakes that much, but I, if they're not poisonous, I don't, you know, they don't, they don't bother me uh, too much, but no one would touch them. So anyway, it was left to me to pick these things up and take them outside, <laughs> and let them go and that sort of thing. Yeah. But we did, you know, we started the brewery up and, and, you know, they made beer and the guy that owned it, he ended up selling it later and moving, moving. Yeah. But, well, uh, that, I
4: was going to say, that's always exciting when you find out what kind of critters live in the brewery. Do you remember the project, Brad? You guys weren't really involved in it, but I built the Fire Truck Brewery oh, yeah, in Long yeah. Beach, California for Monster Garage. Yeah, you and bought stuff had, from me. Yeah, I bought stuff from you because they they only gave us a budget. And I think I called you and said, hey, I'm going to be out in Long Beach, California shooting this TV show. Can you have this box show up like in the middle of next week so I have some parts?
3: Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but we the, that was right, right on the waterfront. And there were rats all over that place and they didn't understand. It was a... You're probably familiar with Jesse James, the motorcycle builder. And he's he had a TV show and they asked me to go build a brewery on a nineteen sixty-three fire truck. But they had no semblance of cleanliness and no semblance of, you know, food safety. And they had grain stacked in the room from, you know, somewhere else. And I'm like, we gotta clean this mess up. I can't I can't work like this. Did you actually get it up and running? Yeah, there's a there's a YouTube TV show. It was on. We filmed the an entire TV uh, episode for monster garage, but it yeah it was a 1963 fire truck and they tried to pit. They put uh, one of the brewers from a uh, stone brewing company was on the show with me, a tank manufacturer who wasn't Brad and uh, two firefighter welder guys, one from Texas. And the other one was a uh, New York city firefighter who was uh charge of repairing all the damaged trucks from 9-11 and so it's a really cool like group of guys to get together to to build but uh yeah it was a uh, it was quite an adventure to you know we had seven days that's the other thing brad i'll tell you these projects never go as quick as you want And seven days with a hard stop at midnight and if they don't if you don't brew beer on it they blow the truck up so
1: it was pretty exciting <laughs> reality tv now we're gonna do one, yeah. one, one more story that really took me um cuz you guys like Balbeer and, and Brad you guys are at the forefront of technology. I mean when I when I'm looking at pictures of Koenig Brewing Systems on on the Instagram it looks like you're making something between a spaceship and robots. You know, mm-hmm. and there's there's I'm sure you've it's evolved and and you're at the top of your game. But what was it like? There was one story there was the historical space in Halifax. I want to hear about uh, making that brewery because you tried to recreate an old system or it looks yeah. like an old system, right?
2: Yeah. I think, uh, Ballbeer, that was kind of a pinnacle for Balbir because, uh, he did all the engineering on that one. Um, and met with, uh, you know, the Labatt because it was a Labatt project you know, it was, uh, Alexander Keith's and, uh, and, L- and Labats owned the, the rights to that. And, uh, and so they, they had this location, uh, in Halifax, that was the site of the original brewery for Alexander Keith's. And that was, and it dates back to, the, the the brewery dates back to 1835, but I think it was 1865 for that particular location. And so they wanted to make that into like an interpretive center. And uh, so they wanted a, uh, you know, a, a period-looking brewery or what people's perception would be of a period-looking brewery, which means all copper and no uh no automation visible and things like that even though we we did build it as an automated brewery and we hid the uh the, the not the PLC but the laptop that we had uh under a roll top desk and this was this was 20 years ago this was 21 years ago it was um in uh the, the spring of 2000 is when we were installing this and uh it was all copper too, and uh, it was very, very pretty setup. But it was much like the Coors Field. We had a hard date for opening, and uh, and it was tight because it was a very complicated project. Because you're you're digging or excavating in a, you know, an old structure that goes back to the 1800s, and you don't know what you're going to find, you know, in the ground and things like that. And and that's exactly what happened. We end up working some long days and long nights and. Through holiday weekends and things like that to hit uh, hit the deadlines, but it, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was because uh, you know again I I learned a lot on the project, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, it made good beer, and that's all I was happy about. And but uh, it sure looked cool too, though.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the things I found uh, with that project that was you know challenged, but was to hide all the modern you know aspects of it. So uh the way you do that you know is was a lot of the vessels just the tops were shown and everything all the piping and all the sort of drives and pumps were sort of at the lower level which is not visible you you can go down to the basement to, you know for maintenance but it was all hidden so you just saw the top halves of the vessels kept it very clean with the copper and everything else uh, and you know like the control center they actually had shipped us this old uh it was a copper um you know panel that had a whole bunch of you know, manual valves and just just little doodads and stuff on it that uh, wasn't really functional. But we cleaned that up and, uh, you we, you know, so we made some of the things on that panel do things, but they didn't really disturb the brewery. Like if somebody touched something, you know, it may make a whistle sound or a, a light pop up. But that was just for the effects. Uh, the actual controls of the brewery was like, you know, an HMI, like it was actually a screen that was hidden. So... Uh, I think that part was fun, like with all the copper. And I think the water tank, we had to clad it in wood uh, because that's what they wanted to make it look like a big barrel. Uh, so I, I think that just different aspects of a brewery, like even though we've done hundreds of breweries, but when you get projects and they want something different, I think, you know, that's the a little challenge and that keeps everything interesting every day. So, yeah. And what, what last one, about beer. so you've uh, you
1: you you've kind of worked your way into this industry and You've learned a lot, I'm sure. What what was an early project where you really felt like you were getting it? I don't know if you can name the brewery, at least the location.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, there's, I guess, yeah, early on, you know, you're doing parts and pieces of a brewery, and then like you started doing the whole thing. I think one of the things that does kind of stick in mind is uh, is the involvement. Well, it was actually a Molson project in uh, what we had one of our stadiums here. Uh, it was called GM Place at the time. Uh, so again, it was putting a brewery into a stadium. And this, you know, spanned, I think four or five different floors. So basically all the way up from is, the top. Is this the hockey arena? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the ski, you know, where the uh, Canucks played, right? Well, uh, and that, and that system
4: ended up back here in Colorado, at <laughs> Colorado yeah. State University, where I started brewing. So you want to talk yeah. about coming full circle. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, then, and then so that one was that was the challenge on that. It was it was a simple, I think, a 10 hectoliter. you know, so the brewery itself was simple in that sense. But because of the location and the site was so sophisticated uh, and I remember, you know, going from one location to another. And so we had to go down with piping down corridors and hide, in some pa- in some places, hide it under the false ceiling and other places where we ex- exposed it because we wanted people to see it. Uh, So that was, you know, that was very interesting. And, you know, you know, crawling all over that arena, basically, and getting in there in off hours. And, you know, we got some perks out of it, got to see some uh, games and things, you know, getting to know those people. So that that was very memorable for me. And, uh, you know, like John said, later on, because they kind of mothballed that it was in storage for a while. But then when it came out, we actually refurbished that system before it went back to Colorado State. So that was a very interesting. Uh,
2: Don't forget too, Bulber, that was also um, everything was seismic on that, too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything, you know, everything, you, everything, we had to do, whether it was the fermenters or, or a water tank or something, everything had to be seismic. So we, what, uh, why that is that, was Brad? All, well, like you, you, don't live in a seismic zone, but it, out in the West Coast, of course, you know, you go from here to California, um, we get earthquakes, and uh, and people don't understand what's required unless you live in this sort of environment. And from an engineering perspective, you know, it's uh, you have to look at the embeddement depth of the anchors, the size of the anchors, the size of the feet, the cross bracing that goes into it. And, and even how to attach all this stuff. And, and then even things like the floor that it's sitting on, you're putting a load on the floor. And so, you know, you have to interface with structural engineers and, and, you know, a lot of these things, you know, people take for granted, but we can't out here. Um, you, 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 know, it has to be um, all part of the project because, Code checkers with City Hall will be looking for that sort of thing, and so you know we had that. All that stuff was covered. I mean, we it wasn't forgotten or anything like that. But it it just it it's another element of the challenges.
1: Well, guys, I have to tell you this has been a really fascinating show, and Brad, it's going to open the door to a lot more shows. You've got so many great stories and and people. Um, John, I'm just going to finish with a normal question. Uh, it's 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 spring almost summer. What's a refreshing beer that, that I should have that you're making?
4: Um, well, you know, I, I was going to get a quick plug, but, uh, you know, Blue Moon wouldn't be what Blue Moon is without Newlands, and I think it's a nationally and internationally recognized brand. We're getting ready to launch. Um, won't be out in your market. Where are you on the East Coast? Uh, Connecticut, New York somewhere probably? Yeah, New York to Boston, yep. Yeah, we uh, we're launching a hazy pale ale that won the gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival last year, and that – that's one of those things, you know. People say, "Oh, you know, good beer. You can make good beer on any system, but I think it sure helps if you have good brewers and a good system." So, uh, hazy IPAs and hazy pale ales right now are probably most refreshing and probably most delicious. So, Moon Haze from Blue Moon's coming out. By the that end sounds of good. Summer. And Brad, yep. you got you got
1: a, you going to have a beer this weekend, or you got one right now?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I'm still at work, but uh, no. When I get home tonight, uh, this afternoon, I'll have a beer. What, I actually have. Gonna- you know, in Canada, we have the uh, John's beer is up here, but there they can't call it blue, if you can believe it. It's not called Blue Moon up here. Yeah, it's well, Belgian because Moon of, because, because of little the bats. bats. Yes. Yep. And uh, copyright and uh, who would who would have funk that you could patent the the word blue? But yeah, apparently you can. not Well, there, so there's a well-known
1: called- guy in the Northeast, and he's patented the word farmstead and you can't you put the word farmstead and brewery in the united states anymore so wow. <laughs> so it, it's out uh, there well you guys are anyway. great brad Th- thank you i'm going to cut you off but thank you so okay. much for bow beer brad and john thanks for joining me on heritage radio network big shout out to our engineer armin and to our producing intern caroline fox i'm jimmy carboni we'll catch you next time on beer sessions radio all right thanks so much <laughs>